thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Morning, Chris. Good morning. Great to be with you on this fine morning. Absolutely. And our science story to kick us off for the for the week is um, cancer. The possibility, what, of detecting cancer via the blood? Yes, this is a new blood test which can be carried out for cancer, both to monitor cancer, but also to look for cancer that you don't know you might have yet. Because we know that cancers form when genes and DNA goes wrong in cells in certain tissues. And then cancers have the ability to spread to other parts of the body and they invade and they they damage surrounding tissues. But if we can pick them up sooner before they become big enough to see on a scan, which by then often they've spread a long way or become very advanced, we'd be able to treat people much better and much more quickly and we'd probably be able to cure them. So how do we do it? Well, there's a paper which has come out. It's by researchers in the Cancer Research Institute in Cambridge at Cambridge University. This is James Brenton and his colleagues. And they've been looking at something called cell-free DNA. Now, when cells in the body die, they chuck out some of the DNA that's in the cell into the bloodstream. And what James Brenton and his colleagues have done is to, to collect some of this DNA and they have measured the length of the pieces of DNA because the DNA doesn't come out of the cells in the complete long, complete genome. It comes out in chunks. It's been chopped up, degraded. Now, on average, in a healthy person, the DNA that you find circulating in the blood like this is about 150 genetic to 160 genetic letters long. But if you look at DNA sequences from cancer cells, much shorter under 150, maybe 90 genetic letters long, each little piece. So what they're saying is, if we take a blood sample from somebody, we collect the DNA fragments, and then we we collect just the ones that are very short and read their sequence, we have a very, very sensitive test that's maybe 10 times more sensitive than existing tests for cancers. And because of certain cancers having certain genetic messages, it can almost pinpoint where in the body those messages have come from. So it gives you somewhere to look. So you can both screen for cancers, but you can also screen for a person's response to treatment. And uh, you can also screen for whether a person might be having a recurrence of cancer. So very exciting, very cheap, very easy to do, and now out there in the public domain. So anyone could start to do this. Stunning. Paul, good morning to you. Thanks so much for calling in. Hi, CBS and Chris. Okay, when, you, when you're lying in bed and your ear is facing the sky, you hear a, a, a sound, you can detect it's coming from the north or the south or the east. But when you're standing up and you hear a sound, you can detect it's coming from the same. What I want to know is, sound waves are traveling in a straight line. They're into your ear canal. Is it where they hit the eardrum that tells your brain which direction that sound's coming from? Hello, Paul. What a wonderful question. Um, I guess you're listening on the radio. And actually, if you've got two speakers, then the sounds from the speakers will be arriving at your ears at slightly different times. And the brain has a very clever mechanism which can deduct how quickly sounds arrive at one ear and the equivalent sound arrives at the other ear. And by subtracting the signal from one to the other, it can work out, therefore, what the latency is. 
because sound travels at the same speed to getting to one ear or the other, it's going to arrive slightly later at one ear compared to the other unless you're looking straight at it. And therefore, your brain can tell that the time difference between the two ears must correspond to how, uh, how much to turn your head in one direction or the other to work out where the sound is coming from. Some animals do this incredibly well. Bats, for example, have a system that enables them to do this with enormous precision, enormously quickly, so that they can use ultrasound to, to trap things as small as a small insect that they're going after. So it's all down to timing. Okay, thanks so much for that fantastic question. Vusi, good morning. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Hello, Eusebius and Dr. Chris. My family has a, a, a bottle of wine that was uh, made in uh, 1983. It makes it 85 years today. Now, if I buy a bottle of wine today and then I open it and then I open that wine, the same brand, the same, will they taste the same or will they be different? If there's a difference, why? Okay, this is a complicated subject and um, I'm, I'm not a wine expert, but I will only talk as a sort of interested amateur. Now, some wines do have a very good what we call bottle age. In other words, you make the wine, you put it in the bottle and it tends to, to either keep very well or it has a long bottle life. The wine gets more complex, gets more interesting as it ages. Archaeologists like being married to other archaeologists because then their partners get more interesting as they get older. Boom. But wine, some wine does do that. And this is because when you make wine, the chemistry that's going on in the wine doesn't stop when you put the cork in the bottle. Wine is a complex mixture of hundreds or thousands of different chemicals and they will continue to react together and continue to evolve once you put that wine in that bottle. Some vintages, some grapes, some winemaking processes result in a wine that does improve. Many wines, they will improve for a while and then they reach their peak and this might be in as little as a year. In some cases it may be as little as seven years, uh, in some cases longer, and then they begin to deteriorate. And so it, it's possible that your wine might be one of these long-lived types. The other possibility is that it might have actually become really quite nasty because a lot of what we like in the wine, some of these chemicals that give the wine its particular flavour, its characteristic, its particular its pH, those chemical reactions that are going on may continue to change the profile and spectrum of those molecules, and that will change the character of the wine. So it's not a given that just because something's older, it's going to have matured and improved and got better. So uh, are you planning to drink the wine anytime soon? Uh, I'm not sure, because uh, there are some people who say I must take it to an auction. Maybe, uh, maybe I can get some nice, uh, you know, fortune out of it. I don't know. It depends. If, if it is a very collectible wine, then it might be worth taking it to an auction. Somehow I doubt that it is, because most people know where those ones are. Um, if I was you, I'd wait for a special occasion, and I would pop the cork on it and try it, and then realise that you are drinking history, in some cases something that's older than a lot of people on this planet, that's but true. I would have a plan B, another bottle, in the fridge, ready to go, just in case, because I have a horrible feeling that's going to taste like vinegar. <laughs> All the best, Vusi. You may want to pop it the day Butterbile is no more politically. Vincent, good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Um, Pidaya, just a question, please. Um, with 100 meters, taking your time on 100 meters, the electronic times are often um, slower if you, uh, than the hang times. What is your explanation on that, please? 
Well, I'm not familiar with the with the numbers. I think what I'd like to do is have a look at the numbers. If you can send me a reference, please, to have a look at with uh, where these these times and numbers and different things are recorded, I'll certainly take a look and give you a verdict. But um, I, I prefer to look at the numbers first rather than, than just flannel, really. That's OK. Mm. Thanks, Vincent. Please do send it. Peter, good morning. Welcome to the show. Yes, Eusebius uh, uh, and uh, uh, Chris. I, I finally managed to overcome my, my fear of needles and I donated blood. And as I was doing that, uh, two questions came to me. And firstly, uh, why, with all the advances in science, hasn't uh, science been able to, uh, to manufacture uh, blood in the lab? And then secondly, um, I noticed that with some people, the blood was coming up slowly, and with some people, it was coming up fast. So the question there is now, why is it that with some people, um, uh, when they're donating blood, the blood comes up quicker, and yeah. others it doesn't okay. come up quicker? Thanks, Peter. A lovely pair of questions. Chris? Yes, these are really important questions, especially the first one, because there is an international shortage of clean, safe blood all the time. And this is because people have blood groups. The human population falls into people who have either group O, group A, group B or group AB blood. And you have to be very careful about which group of blood you give to which person because not everyone can have everyone else's blood. If you put the wrong blood group in, a person can then have an agglutination reaction. And this is where the blood clumps together in the blood vessels and blocks them. The only blood group that you can give to everybody safely is group O negative blood and they make up fewer than 15% of the population. So there's a heavy reliance on a small minority of the population to be the universal donors. So given all of the risks of blood transfusion, the fact that you're taking a tissue from another person, you're putting it into another person, there's a risk potentially very small these days with good quality screening and so on, but there's a risk of transmission of infection, there's a risk of other kinds of reactions and other diseases, there's a risk of the fact that you're putting someone else's material into your body. It would be much better if we could make our own blood. And scientists are working very hard to try and do this because we know that the body does this all the time. It has bone marrow stem cells, They live in the marrow cavity of our long bones, ribs. Those stem cells divide continuously and they produce blood. So if we could recreate an artificial bone marrow in the laboratory, it might be possible to put the stem cells from your bone marrow into those culture dishes and grow blood in vitro in the dish and we'd have a supply, a steady supply of blood. Now, scientists are getting much better at manipulating stem cells to guide them to do this. The problem is the bone marrow is a really complicated environment. It's not just a case of growing some cells and they turn into the right thing. The cells need the right chemistry, they need the right environment, they need the right 3D, three-dimensional environment, with the cells touching each other in just the right way, so they send the right messages to each other to coax each other to become the right sorts of cells. This is not trivial to recreate, so they haven't got there yet, but it's certainly a priority for scientists. Now, in terms of, of why blood comes out fast or slow... The blood that you give in the blood donation centre is collected from a vein. Blood comes out of the heart, and as William Harvey taught us a few hundred years ago, in fact, 500 years ago, comes out of the heart, goes in arteries. Arteries turn into small arteries. Small arteries turn into very tiny blood vessels called capillaries, which nourish the tissue and exchange glucose and oxygen and other things with the tissues and then pick up the waste and those capillaries turn into small venules and the venules drain into big veins. So the veins carry the blood back to the heart. When we collect blood, we're therefore collecting blood from the veins, which are at much lower pressure than arteries. Arteries have high blood pressure because they're pushing blood through the tissue. Veins are like drain pipes that take the blood 
back to the heart. Because the pressure is lower, the pressure between the inside of the vein and outside is lower, therefore there's a lower force pushing the blood out and into the blood collection bag. And that's safe, because if you make a hole in a vein, you bleed much more slowly, and therefore you're not going to hemorrhage out. Make a hole in an artery, and you can lose litres in a minute and that would be catastrophic. So that's why the blood comes out more slowly, and the size of the needle and the size of the vein and actually how much blood is flowing around your body is going to affect the flow rate. Some people tend to bleed very fast if they've got big veins, reasonable flow rate, and a big needle is being used. If you're using a smaller needle or you're using a smaller vein or you have a smaller person, the blood might come out more slowly, but it varies from one person to the other. Thank you, Chris. A gushing answer, one might say. Uh, here's a question from our SMS line. Andrew wants to know from you, why was the planet Pluto downgraded in its status? Yeah, a few years back, Pluto got turned from a planet into uh, what we call a dwarf planet. Really, the rationale behind this was that when people first spotted Pluto, uh, they thought, well, there you go, that's, that's a planet and that's where our solar system ends. But then we got better at astronomy and we realised that out where Pluto is, it's on the margins of something called the Kuiper Belt. And the Kuiper Belt is a ring of debris, it's an ice field, and there's lots of other rocky and icy bodies out there. And some of what we've discovered since Pluto was first identified are much bigger than Pluto. One of Pluto's own moons is actually almost as big as Pluto is. And for those reasons, people realised that we would end up with thousands and thousands of planets in our solar system if we carried on with our definition of Pluto as a planet. If we call Pluto a dwarf planet, then actually we have a definition that fits all of these other things that are hovering on the outer reaches of our solar system, and we therefore have a distinction between those bodies, of which Pluto's one of many, and the more cl clearly defined inner planets, the gas giants like the Jupiters and the Saturns, and then the rocky worlds like the Earth and Mars and Venus, more close to the Sun. 702 and Cape Talk, The Naked Scientist. 24 minutes after 10, let's go back to your questions. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Eusebius and, and Chris. So if I go swimming at the gym, um, I will swim one lap and it feels lighter and then I'll swim the, um, another lap in the opposite direction, and it feels a little heavier. I mean, it could just be that I'm tired, but it doesn't feel that way, and it seems to be um, especially pronounced around the edges of the swimming pool as opposed to the lanes that are in the middle. Why could that be? Hi, Nick. I think there's a range of things going on here. I think uh, you've probably hit the nail on the head, which is that uh, the more time you spend in the water, the more calories you've burned and the more tired you're going to be. So it might just be that you're hitting a bit of a wall on your second lap in the opposite direction. Have you tried reversing the direction you swim in? So you start going in one direction and then you flip it round to the opposite direction with your lap two and, and do one week you go, you start going clockwise and then uh, the next week you start going anticlockwise and see if the effect is the same because that would be the good, the good way to do it scientifically because you'd be using yourself as your own control. There, there is um, probably a healthy element of psychology to this which uh, is part of it as well and there is actually evidence that some animals, racehorses particularly, like to run in certain directions. Uh, they perform better going clockwise or anticlockwise and this is because they have a preferred leg. 
And it might be that your preferred side means that you tend to swim better when you're going one direction and turning. Because if you're turning, you've got to do a bit more work with one side of your body than the other. So if you're turning using your preferred side of the body to do the extra work, then you're going to find that easier than if you're using your less preferred side of your body. So I think there's a range of factors. One could be tiredness, a bit of psychology, and also the fact that you will have a preferred side to your body, a stronger side. And that may be part, part, part of the equation as well. I would do the experiment on yourself, though, and switch it one to the other week on week and see if the same effect applies. Thank you, Nick. Thanks. Come back to us in a couple of weeks. You'll also be fitter. Trace, <laughs> <laughs> you don't know how fit he is at the moment. He sounds pretty good. He goes to the gym. <laughs> That's true. Monica, good morning to you. Hello. Welcome to the show, Monica. What is your question? Uh, good morning. I'm glad I'm through. Please ask Chris. When an, uh, a chick bites into a human uh, skin or flesh, does it first suck the blood or does it uh, spew out its poison? I'm asking this because I was bitten by a chick uh, several times and that the area around that skin is always dead for months on end. It, it's septic and it dies. So the lesion around the bite area goes wider and wider. It spreads wider. Okay. okay, interesting that you that you get that, Chris. Yes, I did. Um, t- and ticks are a big problem mm. because they spread diseases. They can spread bacterial infections. They can also spread viral infections. And so that's why we're worried about them. Uh, th- these are tiny animals. They're very similar or in, in the same family, actually, as spiders. And there are lots of different tick species that tend to favour different animals. There are species, there are ticks that favour big animals, ticks that favour smaller animals. And humans can incidentally become victims because we go into environments where the animals that the ticks normally live on have dropped their ticks and then those ticks climb onto us thinking it's one of their preferred animals. They tend to go for the warm bits, so they climb up your legs and they often go you know, right at the top of your legs or somewhere where it's relatively protected because the tick's modus operandi is it bites through the skin... But the skin is an outer defensive layer that has no access to nutrients, but the tick is going for through the skin to where the blood vessels are in your dermis. And once it gets into those blood vessels, it nips a hole in the blood vessel and it then begins to draw blood from that blood vessel. To facilitate the drawing of blood, it squirts out some saliva and the saliva of the tick does several things. One, it stops you noticing the tick because it helps to stop the um, nerve cells working so well. And two, it stops your blood clotting inside the tick, which the tick needs that to happen so it can continue to drink. Um, And it also means that you don't notice the tick is there. It's sort of anaesthetising you so that you don't brush it off until it's had a chance to finish feeding. Now, the problem is that living on the tick are various bacteria and viruses. And because the tick is making a hole in you and breaking down your defences, and then it's injecting something off its mouth parts, into you, whatever it's carrying, go into you. Now, many of these things are not very pathogenic, and we can, we can deal with them locally with our immune response. Some of them can be nasty. And things like um, Lyme disease, which is a bacterial infection called Borrelia burgdorferi, can be quite serious. So you have to be quite careful with, with ticks, and uh, don't pull them off if you're not careful. You can actually detach the mouth parts and leave the mouth part in you, and that can then become nasty and septic and turn into an abscess in the skin. So remove with caution, but the tick is definitely injecting you with something to facilitate it drinking your blood. They're nasty critters. Chris, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and knowledge with us. We'll do it again next week. Have a lovely seven days ahead. I'm already looking forward to it. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for the question. See you soon. 
thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.